0: day hunting for bear and then he stumbles upon a bear who himself was hunting for food because he was very hungry and so as the hunter raises his rifle to his shoulder the bear charges toward him to eat this hunter but but just before the hunter shoots the bear the bear opens his mouth and in perfect English asks the hunter why are you going to shoot me to which the bear responds. Uh, To which the hunter responds, well, why are you going to eat me? The bear says, well, I'm going to eat you because I'm hungry. And the hunter says, well, I'm going to shoot you because I'm cold and I need your coat to stay warm. To which the bear then responds, well, I think that we can find a compromise. Which they did. The compromise was that the hunter was indeed warmly wrapped up in a bear's blanket and the bear was no longer hungry. Not a very good compromise for the hunter, was it? And I think that sometimes that is how we tend to look at compromise in the church. Indeed, compromise when it comes to foundational principles, to the essentials of our faith, that compromise is always bad. But Scripture actually has a very positive view of compromise when it comes to those things that aren't essential, that aren't fundamental or foundational to our faith. We are called to be peacemakers. And oftentimes, being a peacemaker means that compromise is made on some secondary issues that are not of ultimate importance to our faith. We have before us today a passage that is a wonderful passage on the topic of compromise. Acts chapter 15, you know where we're at there. Acts chapter 15 is an incredible passage for us on compromise because it shows us both sides of the spectrum. It shows us a church that refuses to compromise on the fundamental essential things to their faith. Yet on the secondary items, they are very willing to be peacemakers and compromise on that which is not ultimately consequential to their faith. Acts chapter 15 is where we're at. You remember where we were from last time. The end of chapter 14, the missions report. Paul and Barnabas have come back and have given this missions report to the church They've told how God has opened this door of faith to the Gentiles. And remember we said last week how that set up chapter 15 because chapter 15 is all about the Gentiles. The question of the Gentiles. Can a Gentile be saved or can only Jews be saved? Must one become a Jew before one becomes a Gentile? That was a tremendous question of the day. That question consumes nearly all of chapter 15. So chapter 15 is a large section for us as you'll see as we go through this. Really, it needs to be preached in one sitting because it's all related to each other. But we've got 35 verses and there's 35 verses there that have a lot in them. Some of the things will be a little bit difficult for us to decipher and understand. We'll work through it as best we can. There's tons and tons of application in this passage. Not even all of it am I even going to touch base on, but there's lots of application for us, it, it, this, this passage really does feel, when you preach this passage, it really does feel like you got a tiger by the tail because there's so much in it. We're going to do our best to work through it in a timely way. Last week, we got done, we sung our invitation and prayed, and we looked up in those five minutes to 12. I ain't going to happen today. I, I apologize. But we'll just, we'll just do the best we can and make it through the first 35 verses of Acts chapter 15. Beginning here in verse 1, we start out. With the scene now shifted back to Antioch. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here's the question unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And here's some people come up from Judah, Ju- Judea, probably Jerusalem, and they're teaching the Gentile Christians in Antioch that we love you, we're we glad we're glad that you have come to know Jesus, and you want Jesus as your Savior and your Messiah, but Jesus was the Savior to the Jews. He was the Jewish Messiah. And so therefore, in order to be part of Jesus, you need to be part of the Jews. So you need to be circumcised. Now understand that circumcision was the sign that God gave to His people in the Old Covenant to distinguish them as God's people. That was the sign that was born on the male body that designated them as the people of God, and that sign came from God. And so when they speak to them about circumcision, what they're speaking to them about is not just the cutting of the the foreskin flesh. What they're speaking to them of is all that that represents. The circumcision was just the sign that represented all the other things that came along with it. The dietary laws. The sacrificial laws. The Jewish traditions. The way of life. The Jewish way of life and the Jewish way of faith. And so when they're saying to them you must be circumcised, they're saying to them a whole lot more than just the cutting of some flesh. They're saying to them you must be Jews because Jesus was the Messiah to the Jews. Please understand that... We have every reason to believe that these people were saying this out of love. That they really did understand that that was the way to know Jesus. He was the Jewish Messiah. And so, there, this is not animosity. This is, this is not just sort of a, a legalistic way of thinking. Though that's really what it is as we look at this. But this was really, I think, done out of love and concern. That we know that you love Jesus and you've been compelled towards Jesus, but we want you to be part of Him and here's how you are part of Him. However, verse 2, Paul and Barnabas didn't take very well to that. and Paul, After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, so there was lots of argument. Paul and Barnabas were none too happy that these folks had come up from, from Judah preaching this, uh, this, this extra requirement these extra requirements to salvation. In order to be saved, you must also be circumcised and become a Jew. They had no small dissension and debate with them. And so Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. Now, within verse 2, there's some more things that that are going on that Luke didn't tell us about. These people come up from Jerusalem, and there's a debate and dissension, a lot of discussion about this. Paul and Barnabas aren't too happy. We get the idea that it wasn't exactly a friendly discussion. But also, in the mix of all that, was Peter, who had come up to uh, Antioch as well. In order to see that, we turn over to Galatians chapter 2. I went ahead and put it in your sermon notes, in your bulletin here. Galatians chapter 2, beginning from verse 11. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So, as part of this dissension, this debate that goes on, part of it was Peter. Peter came up to Antioch, probably to hear the missions report that Paul gave back in chapter 14. And while Peter is there, he's fellowshipping with the Gentile Christians. He's sharing table with them. Now, what does a Jew believe about eating with Gentiles? Don't do it. Ever. Never. Under no circumstances does a Jew share a table with a Gentile. But Peter's doing this with these fellow believers in Antioch until some others come up from Jerusalem and these are Jewish believers and Peter sees them and once he sees them, he withdraws. And now he's not fellowshipping with them and now he's not sharing table with them. Paul rebukes him as we see here about his hypocrisy and then this big dissension, this big debate it's what occurs after that. In fact, it gets so big, not only does it, does it divide Peter and Paul for a time, but also it divides Paul and Barnabas for a time. And not only that, but this becomes a huge deal for all of the churches. The church in Philippi. Remember when we studied Philippians? That was a big deal in Philippi. The church in Leicester. The church in Derby. That's what the whole book of Galatians is about. That's much of what Hebrews is about. This was a huge, huge question. So big of a question That they're gonna now have a big powwow. Verse 3. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. So they have this big meeting in Jerusalem. They appoint Paul and Barnabas and some of the other elders to go to that meeting. On the way there, they stop by Phoenicia and Samaria. Remember there's remember the Samaritan revival? There's a church in Samaria. So they stop there. They tell the Samaritan believers and the Phoenician believers all about this first missionary journey of Paul and all of the, how the Gentiles are coming to faith. And they rejoice over that because the salvation of lost people brings joy to God's children. And um, wherever Paul goes, he's talking about Jesus, right? I mean, he's, he's going from Antioch to Jerusalem. And when Paul goes from point A to point B, he's not going to do it without talking about Jesus. So he talks about Jesus, brings great joy, verse 4, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them, which reminds us of uh, chapter 14, verse 27, remember the missions report that Paul gave? He said they declared all that God had done with them, the same words over here, he's declaring to the church in Jerusalem all that God has done with them. Paul was all about giving glory to God. Paul is the one who God is doing miracles through him, he's striking Bar-Jesus blind, he's healing the lame man and Lystra. And, God, and Paul is quick to give God all the glory for that. God has done all these things through us, with us. But, verse 5, but some, belong, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So they have this big church powwow, this big meeting. Now, who likes meeting? Not me. I, I, before I became a pastor, I was in a secular career for 15 years that most every day I had meetings with people and I hundreds of hours I have sat in meetings and I don't particularly care for them. Probably most of you are the same way, but they have this big church meeting because this is, is that important. And Paul and Barnabas have come here along with some other elders of the church in Antioch and now this, this uh, um, party of the Pharisees, the party of the Pharisees rise up in the meeting and they say it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So, this is an issue for the early church that I believe is somewhat difficult for us to really understand well. And the reason is is because we're Gentiles. We've never been under the law of Moses. We've never been um, part of that old covenant people of God. We know that we know Jesus. We know that Jesus saves Gentiles. And we know that we are, we are not grafted into ethnic Israel. We are uh, grafted into spiritual Israel. We know that we're children of Abraham and all, how all that goes. And so for us, I think that this is a very difficult thing to get our minds around. But if I could, let me just help us to understand maybe what the church was dealing with. The significance of the problem or the question that the church was dealing with. The question has to do with the nature of salvation. Does God save people who are outside His covenant of people that are known by the sign of circumcision? Does God save those people that are outside of that? Or do people have to become part of that covenant community of of circumcised Jewish people in order for them to be saved by the Jewish Messiah? It's a tremendous, tremendous question. And I think that we can kind of get a handle on the question if we look at it this way. We have facing our nation today um, a lot of problems, don't we? You might say amen. We have a lot of problems facing our nation today. One of the problems that we are facing today is the fact that there are some 30 to 40 million people living here that are here illegally. They have come here illegally from other countries and they reside here now. They are not citizens. And this creates a tremendous, tremendous problem. And this past week, you've heard a lot of talk about this problem. Once again, it's come back to the forefront. You've heard a lot of talk about how are we to go about solving this problem. Immigration reform. That's what a lot of people talk about. People are talking about how how are we going to get the border secure? Should we get the border secure? And if so, how are we going to do that? But then an even bigger problem is what do we do with the 30, 35, or 40 million people that are here illegally? Nobody, no reasonable person believes that it is feasible to deport 35 or 40 million people. No reasonable person believes that that is any longer a feasible option. Not not even to mention the damage it would do to, to our society and our infrastructure, all those people that are employed in, in jobs here, if they were suddenly gone, what would that do to our economy, to our society? Not to mention their children that have been born here and are citizens. So it's a huge problem, and nobody is really thinking that it's reasonable anymore to round up 35 million people and deport them. So the question is, what about those that are here illegally? How do we resolve that? And most people agree that there has to be some, you've heard this phrase, path to citizenship. Now what that path to citizenship is, who knows right now? Who knows what's right and who knows what's wrong? But most people agree that somehow they've got citizens. And we've got to figure out a way that, they're, that they can become citizens. And so within that whole discussion comes the word that nobody likes. You know what it is? Amnesty. What's amnesty? Amnesty is... A forgetting of the crime of coming here illegally, right? You can hear it in the word amnesia. That means forget everything. Amnesty means you forget about the crime. You forget about that, that person is a lawbreaker to be here and they're given citizenship and pardoned of the, of the crime of coming here illegally and they're given, given citizenship. Amnesty is something that probably most of us would at least have a little bit of a problem with, if not a big problem with, Um, I would imagine that probably most of us here would not be in favor of granting amnesty to everyone who's here illegally. Um, If tomorrow morning the president signed an executive order that granted citizenship to everyone who was here illegally, then we would probably be very upset with that because the idea of full citizenship being given to someone who wasn't born here and came here illegally, that we find that to be disturbing. right? Am I right? Take that feeling that you have about that and take it to the spiritual level and that is exactly the problem in the early church. Because that's exactly what Paul was preaching. Spiritual amnesty. These people weren't born Jews. They've never observed the laws of the Jewish people. And yet they're going to be given full citizenship in the people of God. It's almost exactly the same issue that we are dealing with when we talk of, of, of uh, amnesty within the, within the topic of immigration reform. Paul is talking about spiritual amnesty for those who by every Account did not deserve to be full citizens of the kingdom of God, and so all of the deta- all of the distaste that you may have when we talk about political amnesty take it to another level, and that's what the church was wrestling with. can you see why this was such a contentious issue? Can you see why that people were very, very passionate on both sides and This was not something that was quickly or easily settled and put away. Even after Acts chapter 15, this is going to go on for years and years and decades before the problem is really put to rest. I think you, you kind of get a taste of the whole scope of the problem when we put it like that, don't we? Now, here's the next part of that. The next part of that is that I want to help you understand that you are just like the party of the Pharisees, and so am I. We all are like that to one degree or another. Because here's what the party of the Pharisees was doing. What they were attempting to do by placing the law of Moses on the uh, Gentile believers was they were attempting to take away some of the scandal of the gospel, to take away some of that the scandal to make the gospel a little less scandalous. If tomorrow morning our president signed an executive order that made every illegal person here immediately full legal citizen, that would be a scandal, wouldn't it? That would be scandalous. Now what's a scandal? A scandal is something that is, it appears morally wrong, but it's not just wrong. It's shockingly wrong. right? If you get a, a speeding ticket on Old 87 here, that's wrong. But that's not shockingly wrong. And depending on how you drive, maybe it's not shocking at all. But it's not shockingly wrong. A scandal is something that's shocking and wrong. And so the Gospel in that sense was scandalous. Here are people that have no right whatsoever to claim the people of God. We do. We were born into the covenant people of God We have followed His laws and regulations and sacrifices, and we've been the faithful people of God. We were circumcised on the eighth day. we follow the dietary laws. We've gone to the synagogue. We've gone to the temple. We've done all these things. And we love these people and we want them to be part of God's kingdom, but we can't just give this to them. I mean, it's okay that they weren't born Jews. We understand that. That's unfortunate. But now they need to do what they can to make up for that. And what Paul is preaching is No. Spiritual amnesty says it's given to you completely freely. And you are utterly unworthy of receiving it. There is nothing about you that makes you worthy of receiving this. And so I give this to you completely freely. It's the same thing Jesus was talking about in the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Remember that parable? Some of them worked all day long. Some of them worked half a day. Some of them worked a couple of hours. And Jesus... Jesus says that the owner of the field gave them all the same pay. And the ones who worked all day were upset about that. And that was Jesus' point. That is the nature of grace. Grace is utterly unmerited and un- utterly, utterly unworthy of it. And that's what makes the Gospel scandalous. It's scandalous to think of full citizenship in the Kingdom of God being given to people who are so utterly unworthy of it. And so this is why I say all of us, to one degree or another, struggle with the same issue as the party of the Pharisees were struggling with. They were struggling with the scandal of the gospel. Let me ask a question to you. I think that maybe this question will illustrate to you what, what I'm speaking of when I say that we all struggle with this from time to time. It's a question I found that is, is very revealing to reveal to us our own heart in the sense of, of how much do we really grasp the gospel. And the question just goes like this. It's very simple. Just imagine that you meet God right now. That um, before you walk out this door, either your life is taken or Jesus comes back or whatever, and you meet God right now, would God be disappointed with you? Or would He be pleased with you? Most people, most Christians, will say, I think you'll be disappointed. Because we know That we're sinful people. And we know that we fail God daily. And so I think most people will say, well, yeah, God will be disappointed with you. That reveals to you how you are thinking just like the prophet of the Pharisees. In that God attaches your spiritual worth or your spiritual value to something you do. To how well you obey Him. The scandalous answer of the Gospel is if you were to meet God today, He will be completely pleased with you. There will be no displeasure on the part of God if He meets you today. Why? Because He is completely pleased with Jesus. And Jesus covers you. That is why if you meet God right now, He will be completely pleased with you if you're in Christ. Now, that's not the same thing as saying that God's pleased with sin. Of course, God is displeased with sin. But God is not displeased with you. You see how easy it is to confuse our worth with God, our value to God, with how well we're obeying Him. It is so easy to do. And this is exactly what the Pharisees have done. The worth of the Antioch believers is somehow attached to something that they do. And Paul says, no, it's not. It's attached to something Jesus did. And that makes them fully worthy, fully pleasing unto God. You see, we all have this same bent, this same tendency to slide back into thinking that God views us based on how well we're doing for Him. It's a tendency that all of us have that we naturally slide back into into feeling like God is more pleased with us when we've obeyed Him well and less pleased with us when we've failed to obey Him well. And again, that is not the same thing as saying that God does not desire obedience from you and that God is not displeased with sin. But God is never displeased with anyone who is inside of His Son Christ and has had the righteousness of Christ. That's the scandal of of 2 Corinthians 5.21. God has made Him who knew no sin to be sin for you, that you would be the righteousness of God. Scandalous, isn't it? Kind of hard to get your mind around. And so you can see how hard it was for these Jewish believers to get their minds around this. So they stand up and say, it's necessary for them to circumcise themselves and follow the law. In other words, in order to be worthy to God, they've got to do something. They can't just be given full worthiness without doing something. Then verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. Now we hadn't heard from Peter since way back in chapter 12. But now Peter stands up. And Peter is going to, first of all, let me just make a comment about the, the humble leadership of Peter. Peter waits till everybody has spoken, waits quietly and patiently till everybody has spoken. He's showing wisdom here. Proverbs. 18 verse 17 says the one who states his case first seems right until the other one comes and examines him. Isn't that the truth? Don't you? When you, sometimes you hear one side of a story, you say, Yeah, hey, that that sounds absolutely. Until you hear the other side, right? And so Peter holds his tongue. He listens carefully before he speaks. Remember, this is the same guy that back in the Gospels was so quick to speak about everything, was constantly putting his foot in his mouth. You see how far Peter's come. He humbly listens, right? And he stands up, finally. And don't you, get, don't you get the sense Peter's the most respected person in the room, isn't he? This is Peter. He's the rock. He's got the keys. He walked on water. He is, he is the most respected person in the room. And so don't you get the sense that whatever side Peter comes down on is going to be what the church does? But he stands up and said to, the, to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the backs of of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So Peter stands up and makes this little speech. Sounds exactly like Paul, doesn't it? Only it's Peter. And he makes this speech and says, here is the side that I'm going to come down on. I'm going to come down on the side of Paul. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the Gospel. He's talking about Cornelius' house. Remember the whole sheet thing? And he goes to Cornelius' house. What God has declared clean, don't you? don't you... Uh, call unclean. And so then he preaches the Gospel. Cornelius and the other Gentiles are saved. And the proof of that was, verse 8, God who knows the heart bears witness by giving them the Holy Spirit. God's not going to make a mistake when He gives His Holy Spirit. That's only given to people who are in Christ. And God's not going to make a mistake in the giving of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit was given to them, so clearly, they are now part of Christ. And they were uncircumcised Gentiles, by the way. Then verse 9, He makes no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. There used to be a great distinction between Jew and Gentile. That distinction is wiped away, as Paul will tell us in Ephesians chapter 2. On the cross, Jesus wiped away the distinction between clean and unclean, and uh, Gentile and Jew. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? By the way, you think that, that these Gentile believers need to follow the law in order to be acceptable to God? you haven't followed the law either. And neither have I, says Peter. We couldn't even bear under the law. And now you expect them to. Verse 11, but we believe that, the, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Notice how he put it. He didn't say they'll be saved just like us. He said we'll be saved just like them. Now, let me just reflect for a moment on Peter by reminding us of what just recently happened up in Antioch. We read it from Galatians chapter 2. Peter goes up to Antioch. He's fellowshipping with the believers and he withdraws when some other Jews come up there and Paul rebukes him openly, it said, Now, perhaps Paul should have done that in private. I don't know, but he did it in public. He rebuked Peter in front of the Antioch believers and in front of the Jewish believers that had come up there. Now, here's how we tend to think of Peter and Paul. We tend to think of them as equals. Maybe even we tend to think of Paul more highly than Peter because Paul wrote so much of the New Testament. That's not the case right now. Compared to Peter, Paul is the Johnny-come-lately upstart. Peter was with Jesus. Peter is the rock. He's got the keys. He walked on the water. He is Peter the Great. Paul, who is he? Yeah, Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and yeah, he's done some, God's done some miracles through him and these things, yeah. But, this is not a comparison of equals here. Peter is much more highly respected than Paul right now. And yet, Paul rebukes Peter. Now, they find themselves back in Jerusalem in front of the church council. And here Paul has stated his case. And everybody in the room has the utmost respect for Peter. Peter can stand up. And he can crush Paul right now, can he? Brothers, I was with Jesus. Jesus gave me the keys. I say that these believers need to follow the law of Moses. And that would have been done for Paul. But Peter doesn't do that. The humility of Peter, having been just rebuked by Paul, Now Peter stands up and takes Paul's side. Or rather, takes the side of what's right. Takes the side that the Holy Spirit has led him to. How can Peter do that? Peter can do that because Peter has been crucified to Peter. He's been crucified to his reputation. He's been crucified to his pride. Just as Paul will say later on to the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It is now Christ who's living in Peter. And Peter is not concerned about his reputation. He's not concerned about vengeance. He's concerned about what is right. Folks, how many problems in our churches would have been avoided if our leaders thought like Peter? If our leaders were not concerned with their reputation and their advancement, but instead were humble and had been crucified to themselves, And instead, only looked at matters from the perspective of the kingdom of God. How many church splits would we have avoided? How many church issues would we have avoided? How many hurt feelings would we have avoided if our leaders were more like the godly leadership of Peter right here? But you know, Peter's not the only godly leader in the room. Verse 12, And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. In other words, God's in this, guys. Haven't you heard about the healing of the man at Lystra? Haven't you heard about Bar-Jesus? Haven't you heard about all these signs and wonders? Obviously, I'm not doing that. God's clearly in this. Then verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied. So, who is James? James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's the leader of this meeting. The moderator, if you want to call it that. He's the leader of the meeting here. He is not the Apostle James. The brother of John. Remember, he had his head chopped off back in chapter 12. He's been martyred. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't even believe in Jesus until after his resurrection. He has now, he's the writer of the, the epistle of James too. So this is the same James that wrote James. He has now become the leader, the respected leader of the church here in Jerusalem. And he stands up and speaks. Now, let me say something else about James before we go on. James was a Jewish Christian who believed passionately in the keeping of the law. As I said, he wrote the Epistle of James. And I know we've all read the Epistle of James. How often James talks about the law in five chapters. He talks about it ten times. Here's a man who's passionate about Christians being morally upstanding in the keeping of the law and so on and so forth. Do you remember who... Who it was that came to Antioch that got Peter so upset? Remember who it was that came? Back in Galatians 2 again. When Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from... James. James sent them. They were James's cronies. They thought like James. Meaning that they had high regard for the law, just as James did. So now, the leader of the church, the leader of the meeting, is a person who is inclined toward the law. He stands up. What's he going to say? After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, who's that? Peter but James calls him Simeon. We haven't heard him called Simeon since way back in Matthew 16 when Jesus changed his name to Peter. Why does he call him... In fact, nowhere else in Acts is he ever called Simeon. Why does James call him Simeon? That's his Jewish name. See the wisdom of James? This good Jew, Peter, has said this. Peter has, or Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with, the, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by My name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So he quotes from the prophet Amos, and he says, God's not forgotten about Israel. God's not forgotten about His covenant people, but God has always planned to graft the gentiles into the people of God. But notice notice what the final authority is. The final authority on the whole discussion was not Paul, it wasn't it wasn't even the experience of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't the Holy Spirit wasn't even the final authority here. The final authority was the word of God. That's where James goes in the very end. He says we've heard this testimony, we've heard this testimony, we've heard about the Holy Spirit. Now does that agree with the Word of God? Yes, it does. Because God has always planned to graft in the Gentile people into His people. So he quotes from the prophet here. And he says, verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from, the blood, from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So they, here's, here's the decision and they come up with this decision that this is what they decide to do. They're going to write to the church and send them these four requirements. The requirements are that um, they abstain from idolatry, they abstain from sexual immorality, they abstain from meat that's been strangled and they abstain from meat with blood in it. Now, When we began, I said that we're going to make it through the first 35 verses of Acts 15. And it is now 12 o'clock. We're on verse 18. So, um, we're not going to finish this passage this morning. So what we're not going to talk about are all four of these requirements. Instead, that's where we'll start next time. Because think about the four requirements. We'll talk about two of them today. And then we'll stop. Sexual immorality... Those are pretty easy, right? Talk for a minute about those. But then the other two, abstain from meat that's been strangled and from meat that has blood in it. Now wait a minute. Didn't you just say that we're not going to burden them with the law of Moses? Yet, what is abstaining from meat that's been strangled or meat that has blood in it? The law of Moses. Kind of baffling, right? And so that's why we'll come back to that part next week. But the other two requirements are this. Abstain from idolatry and abstain from sexual immorality. Those are pretty um, easy to discern. I mean, that's not Old Covenant versus New Covenant stuff. It's, it, that's just God's stuff. That's just following Christ's stuff. God's people have always been expected to abstain from idolatry and to abstain from uh, sexual immorality to, to keep themselves sexually pure. Right? That's not... Old Covenant versus New Covenant, Law of Moses versus Jesus. There's none of that. That's just godly. But why does James go to the effort to point out those two things? Because that's, those are not the only two things that Christians should do, are they? A lot more things that we should do. Why does James point those two things out? He points those out because the Antioch church was a church that was inside of a culture that was still Steeped in both of those things. Idolatry and sexual immorality. Antioch was covered up with idols. The people in Antioch were really into their idols. The people in Antioch were also really into their sexual perversions. You think that we are sexually immoral today? Folks, we're not the first generation that has been like this. Yes, people have seemingly lost all sense of sexual morality today, but this didn't just happen. People have always been fallen and people have always ended up in places like where we are today. And the people of the world of Antioch were the same way. They were covered up with sexual perversion, sexual promiscuity, um, idolatry. And so James writes to them and says, in particular... You must abstain from these two things, idolatry and sexual, uh, sexual uh, immorality. Because James's point is going to be you are affected by the culture around you. You are affected by the sin that is around you. You are not a little island that lives all to yourself. But instead, you are part of a culture. Yes, you belong to Christ. And yes, you have a new heart. But you are also part of a fallen culture. And that fallen culture can influence you. Even Isaiah said this. Isaiah 6 verse 5. What does he say? Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, for I live among an unclean people. Even Isaiah recognized the fact that the people around him could influence him to sin. They can't make him sin, but they can sure influence him to sin. And folks, you're the same way. Just as the Antioch Christians must especially guard themselves against the sins that are the favorite sins of the culture around them, so must you. So must you, with wisdom, recognize the sins that are most prevalent all around you and especially guard yourself against them. Because you know what? You are not an island off in the ocean by yourself. You are like a ship in a moving river. And either that river is going to take you with it, or you're going to go against the current. And you must recognize the direction the current is going in so that you can understand which direction you need to row in. And that's why he's pointing these two things out. Sexual immorality and idolatry. But both of those are great messages for us today too, aren't they? You know, it's becoming almost almost, uh, taboo. This is a statement about our culture. It's becoming almost taboo to preach today about sexual immorality from the pulpit. Ten years ago, hey, every Christian knew that we're supposed to be sexually pure. But now, it's a whole different world today. I just read recently a poll, a recent poll that told me that well over half of all of the young, unmarried, Self-professed, born-again believers in the evangelical church in this country, well over half of them are sexually active. Well over half, folks. And so the church, to a large degree, has just bought into this false wisdom of the world that says what happens in the bedroom is really none of your business. That is not true. What happens in the bedroom is still the church's business. And it's still God's business, just like it has always been. And God has still, as always, still calls His people to sexual purity. And folks, it doesn't matter if this is taboo or not. It is the Word of God. It doesn't matter if our culture is on a rapid race toward a full embracing of homosexuality. That doesn't matter. In the sense that we are still called to the same values, the same morality that we always have. Sexual purity. Sexual activity only takes place between a man and a woman under the covenant bond of marriage. So this is what James says to the church. These two things, folks, you must be specially aware of. What are the things that you need to be specially aware of in this culture? What are the sins that are all around you? that are particularly accepted, that you need to be on particular, particularly on your guard about.